In dry, level country, take up an easily accessible portion of rising ground to your right and on your rear, so that the danger may be in front and safety lie behind. These are the words of Sun Tzu, a Chinese general who lived over 2,000 years ago, and perhaps the greatest military tactician of all time. In a literal sense, his words often remain true in modern conflicts. For instance, in Afghanistan and Pakistan today, armed insurgents find refuge in remote mountains. The literal high ground has its tactical advantages, but this is also true in a broader, more figurative sense. In the modern era, wars fought on the land and at sea could be won if a nation had control of the air. With the dawn of the space age, Earth orbit became a new metaphorical high ground to occupy. The exploration of space and the looming specter of war have always been inextricably linked, for they rely on virtually the exact same rocket technology. And for at least half a century, space has been a sort of superhighway for weapons of mass destruction. Beyond the drag and resistance of the Earth's thick atmosphere, intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, travel at many times the speed of sound, reaching virtually any destination on the planet Earth within mere minutes after being launched. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. You might recall that in Episode 6 of our podcast, we discussed some of the possibilities of space-based combat during the Cold War. But there is much, much more for us to explore, both in past history and in our planet's future. From Ronald Reagan's dream of defensive space weapons to the United States military's newly formed Space Force. We will be breaking up this new series into two parts. Today, we'll be returning to a familiar era in Earth's history, the Cold War. In part two of this series, we will step out of history and look towards the future. We hope you'll join us to explore the triumphs, tribulations, and challenges that the opening vistas of space pose for the human race, and to take a look into the minds of the brilliant scientists and engineers who have contemplated a war waged from the ultimate high ground. For all of recorded human history, there have been conflicts between different groups of people, from civil wars to international conflicts, and even two world wars in the 20th century. For the time being, we have managed to narrowly avoid World War III. In the 1930s, a fascist dictator came to power in Europe, and shortly thereafter, the Second World War erupted in the Western world. German Chancellor Adolf Hitler declared that his people needed additional living space, which was to be acquired by the invasion of neighboring countries. By the early 1940s, the Western world was engulfed in a conflict with Nazi Germany and the Axis powers, fighting against Allied forces, which eventually came to include the United States of America. Both Axis and Allied nations alike were decimated during the war, but the continental United States, America's homeland, was isolated safely with the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the Pacific Ocean on the other, with the Earth's two largest oceans on either side of the continent 
Axis forces faced an enormous distance to cross if they were to mount an attack. The United States managed to almost entirely avoid any civilian casualties during World War II. Late in the war, a highly advanced Nazi weapon known as the V-2, or Vengeance Weapon, killed thousands in Allied England. It was a ballistic missile that skimmed the edge of space, carrying explosives hundreds of miles across Europe and the English Channel. The V-2 was the brainchild of rocket scientist Werner von Braun, a young man who had always dreamed of using rockets for space travel. With American aircraft dropping hundreds of bombs on Germany, laying waste to the nation's industrial centers, Hitler yearned to retaliate against American enemies, to decimate an American city. The V-2 was the most advanced and powerful rocket on Earth at the time. But even this innovative V-2 could not cross thousands of miles of ocean to hit cities on the east coast of the United States. Germany had no military aircraft capable of crossing the Atlantic either, dropping their bombs and returning to Europe. The journey was far too long to go without refueling. Yet still, the grim fantasy persisted. Finally, an Austrian engineer and mathematician named Sange crafted a detailed plan spanning hundreds of pages. A plan that could make Hitler's dreams of bringing war to American soil into a terrifying reality. It called for the creation of a lightweight, high-altitude aircraft, which Sanger dubbed Silverbird. A cluster of multiple V-2 rockets joined together would loft the craft into the upper atmosphere, at which point the plane's own rocket engine would ignite, carrying it to an altitude of 145 kilometers, or about 90 miles above the Earth, into outer space. Traveling at thousands of miles per hour, it would fly over the Atlantic Ocean. Gradually, the Earth's gravity would pull it back into the Earth's atmosphere, but the craft's wings would then generate lift, forcing it back to a higher altitude, like a rock skipping off a pond. The Silverbird would be an aircraft-spacecraft hybrid. Sanger, like von Braun, had dreams of space travel. His detailed plan was perhaps the first earnest effort to design a true spaceship, and perhaps also the first primitive design in history for a reusable space shuttle. To say Sanger was ahead of his time would be an understatement. The Silverbird's cargo would not be any conventional explosive. Shortly after the discovery of nuclear fission, Nazi Germany had mounted an aggressive effort to invent atomic weapons by manufacturing heavy water, similar to regular H2O, but with a unique atomic structure. The project was later abandoned. The Nazis had no nuclear bombs to drop on the United States, and the conventional bombs that Allied forces dropped on Germany would be far too heavy for this small aircraft. But they could detonate a bomb filled with radioactive sand, casting a volatile radioactive shroud of dust across New York City. Aviation historian David Myra described the cargo as a prototype dirty bomb. After the bomb had been dropped, the Silverbird's astronaut pilot would continue his flight in the upper atmosphere, hurtling at fantastic speeds across North America 
gradually losing altitude, and finally landing somewhere in the Pacific, ideally on an island controlled by Imperial Japan, thus concluding its suborbital flight. In the end, the plan never came to fruition. In the spring of 1945, Nazi Germany surrendered unconditionally to Allied forces. That same year, the United States finally succeeded in becoming the first nation on Earth to invent an atomic bomb, which they would use on Imperial Japan. But the victors of the war, the United States and the Soviet Union, shared the Nazi dream of deadly weapons that could traverse whole oceans and continents. And in the summer of 1957, a brilliant engineer named Sergei Korolyov invented the first intercontinental ballistic missile. The United States would follow shortly thereafter. Such rockets were the fiery chariots that allowed the first human beings to travel into outer space. But they also created an entirely new dynamic in the history of modern warfare, mutually assured destruction. In the early years of the Cold War, long-range aircraft were the only option for delivering nuclear weapons to enemy targets. But by the early 1960s, the concept of a nuclear triad was developed in both the United States and the Soviet Union. The triad consisted of missile silos on Earth, aircraft in the skies, and submarines at sea, all able to launch a nuclear strike immediately in the event of a war. If either nation were to launch a full-scale nuclear strike, it would almost certainly be an act of national suicide that would instantly claim half, or perhaps more, of a nation's total population. The radioactive fallout in the aftermath of the war would likely claim far, far more lives. Even if, for instance, the Soviet Union decimated American nuclear missile silos, long-range bombers in the air, and submarines at sea would launch a full retaliatory strike with nuclear weapons that they had left over. Ultimately, both the United States and the Soviet Union soon had so many nuclear weapons that the prospect of decimating even one piece of another nation's nuclear triad was daunting. But what if a nuclear first strike took out a nation's political leadership and they were unable to give the order to retaliate? To prepare for such a contingency, the Soviet Union designed a robotic control system for its own nuclear weapons called Dead Hand. If clear signs of an all-out nuclear attack were detected by seismic sensors or by Geiger counters used to measure radioactivity, then Dead Hand would automatically give the order to launch the entire nuclear arsenal of the Soviet Union in retaliation. The United States developed a similar system. Mutually assured destruction was the state of Cold War foreign policy for roughly two decades. In the late 1960s, the Republican governor of California visited a federal research facility in the state. The facility was known as the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. The governor was none other than Ronald Reagan. When then-Governor Reagan was visiting the facility, he watched a presentation by Edward Teller, a brilliant nuclear physicist who worked to develop the first atomic bomb and later the first hydrogen bomb. Teller claimed that someday... Directed energy weapons might be developed that would be capable of defending the U.S. by destroying incoming nuclear missiles, perhaps for the use of highly advanced lasers. 
The science and engineering described in the lecture was not simple by any means, but the governor asked several questions afterwards. He was clearly intrigued. Just over a decade later, the governor found himself on a visit to the North American Aerospace Defense Command, also known as NORAD, a top-of-the-line military facility buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain in the state of Colorado. In the event of a nuclear war, operations could be directed from inside. Incoming Soviet missiles could be tracked with reasonable accuracy in the event of a conflict, but there was little that could be done to shoot them down. Even if an American missile could be fired at the incoming Soviet missile, it would be the equivalent of trying to hit a bullet in midair by firing another bullet. The governor asked one general at NORAD what would happen if a large nuclear warhead detonated directly above the mountain. The general replied that the entire facility, protected as it appeared, would likely be wiped off the map. Governor Reagan said, quote, there must be something better than this. In the election of 1980, Ronald Reagan would win the presidency in a landslide, and despite the fact that the American economy was struggling through a severe recession, the cataclysmic, looming threat of a nuclear apocalypse was never far from President Reagan's mind. The Soviet Union now had over 30,000 nuclear warheads, and the United States had roughly 20,000 more than enough to destroy both nations several times over. In the event of a Soviet first strike, President Reagan knew the decision to retaliate would be his alone. This was a status quo that the new president found totally unacceptable, and physicist Edward Teller was still giving lectures about directed energy weapons. Perhaps, just perhaps, there might be something better, something to change the game. In the 1940s, Hitler dreamed of using space-age technology to rain down death and destruction on his enemies from the other side of the world, but the technology was beyond his nation's grasp. Such technology later came to fruition, but only long after he dreamt it. Four decades later, President Reagan came up with a vision that was the antithesis of Hitler's dream, to use space-age technology to defend against forces of death and destruction. But that, too, was beyond his nation's grasp, at least at the time. Ronald Reagan had worked as a lifeguard in his youth, and some have suggested that the idea of saving lives, rather than taking them, was an inherently appealing notion that drove his Cold War foreign policy. In the spring of 1983, President Reagan scheduled a speech to outline a bold new proposal, which he called the Strategic Defense Initiative. The United States Secretary of State gave the Soviet ambassador an advanced copy of the speech, and the ambassador read it from start to finish. With a disturbed and bewildered expression on his face, the Soviet ambassador coldly said, quote, You will be opening up a new phase in the arms race. In March of 1983, the president gave his speech as planned. Wouldn't it be better to save lives than to avenge them? 
Are we not capable of demonstrating our peaceful intentions by applying all our abilities and our ingenuity to achieving a truly lasting stability? I think we are. Indeed, we must. After careful consultation with my advisors, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I believe there is a way. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. It was an almost utopian proposition that President Reagan brought to the American people, designed to counter the idea of mutually assured destruction, but it relied on technology that did not yet exist. When President Kennedy had boldly proposed landing a man on the moon in the 1960s, it was thought the technology could be developed in less than 10 years. In contrast, the technology to make President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, into a reality was still decades away. Liberal critics dubbed the new proposal Star Wars, suggesting that it was just as plausible as the movie franchise of the same name. Interestingly enough, over four decades before his SDI speech, Ronald Reagan was a movie star, playing the lead in a 1940 film called Murder in the Air, a spy thriller involving a high-tech death ray called the Inertia Projector, placed aboard a large blimp. Had President Reagan drawn his inspiration for SDI from the plot of a film, which he himself had starred in? Ironically, Political scientist Carrie L. Hunter said the fact that SDI was beyond present-day technological capabilities was precisely what made it so appealing. It allowed ordinary Americans to turn away, or perhaps even ignore, the horrific possibility of nuclear war and focus on a brighter tomorrow. Yet mutually assured destruction was still a dark reality in the 1980s. Just prior to his SDI speech, President Reagan had declared that the Soviet Union was pure evil. Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man, and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. And this was not merely political rhetoric. The Reagan administration had a foreign policy to match it. What followed was one of the largest peacetime military buildups in American history. It was designed to match, or even exceed, large military expenditures in the Soviet Union. Just months after President Reagan's SDI proposals, the U.S. military began a joint military exercise with American allies in Western Europe. The exercise was codenamed Able Archer. It involved the coordinated movement of massive numbers of military personnel and equipment through West Germany, not far from the Soviet Union's own borders. Within days, Soviet military and political leaders 
became convinced that the Reagan administration was making final preparations for the invasion of the Soviet Union. Or, worse yet, a nuclear first strike. Soviet pilots at bases in Poland were placed on high alert, ready to take to the air with their cargo of nuclear weapons at a moment's notice. Soviet documents obtained by the CIA showed that paranoid communist leaders at the highest levels were convinced that war with NATO was imminent. It was not until the exercise finally concluded in the autumn of 1983 that the Soviet Union would finally tell its own forces to stand down. It was the closest that the world had come to World War III since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. The threat of a nuclear holocaust was still very real indeed. If the United States were committed to spending money on research and development for SDI, then the Soviet Union knew that they too would have to follow in tandem with a similar program. In the eyes of Soviet leadership, if the United States could defend itself from a Soviet nuclear attack, then, hypothetically, the United States could easily launch a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union, without fear of Soviet retaliation. While President Reagan claimed that the United States would be happy to share such technology with the rest of the world, the Soviet Union saw this as an absurd, empty promise. And indeed, at the time President Reagan proposed SDI, American-Soviet relations were at an all-time low. But assuming SDI technology could even be developed, theoretically speaking, how would it work? It had been well over a decade since that lecture at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Since then, the laboratory had been working on a plan for an X-ray laser called Project Excalibur. The concept involved detonating a nuclear explosion inside the confines of a special machine. The immense explosion would release X-rays, and the machine would use lasers to channel the X-rays into an extremely powerful beam or perhaps a series of beams. An underground nuclear test in the Nevada desert in 1980 had demonstrated that technology might have promise and intrigued a hopeful President Reagan. If everything went according to plan, Decades of research and development might result in a system of powerful lasers in low Earth orbit that could destroy ICBMs as they traveled across Earth's upper atmosphere at the very edge of outer space. More conventional, ground-based ballistic missiles could be coupled with the X-ray lasers to shoot down ICBMs inside the Earth's atmosphere. One prominent scientist in the publication of Physics Today said that anti-ballistic missile technology certainly warranted more research, but SDI raised false hopes and would be politically destabilizing. The Soviet Union publicly denounced the program. They worried that in just a few years' time, the American space shuttle would be carrying X-ray laser weapons in its cargo bay to test in outer space. As a result, the Soviet Union began developing their own space shuttle at great cost to keep up with the United States. On three separate occasions, 
the United States performed tests where they launched one of their own missiles and then attempted to intercept it with a separate missile. Each of the three tests failed. Hurtling across thousands of miles in mere minutes, ICBMs travel at 20 times the speed of sound. At such fantastic speeds, it was simply not possible to shoot down an incoming ballistic missile. STI required Congress to commit billions of dollars to the project, and many critics now claim that the program was merely a partisan political fantasy that would waste taxpayer dollars, start a new arms race, antagonize the Soviet Union, and alienate American allies. A final test was scheduled for the summer of 1984. A missile would be launched from a remote location in the Pacific Ocean. Then, shortly thereafter, an interceptor missile would be launched from California. The result was a direct hit, and it demonstrated that it was indeed possible to intercept an incoming ICBM with another ballistic missile. There was just one problem. The test had been rigged. Years after President Reagan had left office, multiple administration officials informed the New York Times that on one missile, a radio homing beacon had been installed. On the other missile, a radio receiver. It was the equivalent of one of the missiles announcing its presence on a prearranged radio frequency. In real life, Soviet missiles would have no special beacons announcing their presence. Neither Congress nor the American people were told about the use of this special radio beacon. Needless to say, the Soviet Union was shocked by the test. In their eyes, it meant that SDI was progressing far faster than originally predicted. In 1984, an Air Force Lieutenant General was appointed the first director of the Strategic Defense Initiative Organization. A year later, more than a dozen aerospace corporations were working on research and development for the organization. Meanwhile, Soviet communist leaders had more immediate problems than space lasers and missile shields. While the American capitalist economy was in a period of growth and recovery, the Soviet economy, controlled by their central government, was foundering. For the ordinary Soviet citizen, bread lines and food shortages were commonplace. For the Soviet government, fighting a war in Afghanistan, keeping Soviet troops stationed across Eastern Europe, and now developing space weapons all siphoned money away from domestic spending on the home front. Some students of history might say that there are at least a few eerie historical parallels between the present-day United States and the Soviet Union of the 1980s. A war in Afghanistan, a military stretched thin across the world, and daunting economic prospects on the home front. Alas, for any nation, being a superpower is an expensive enterprise. In the 1980s, a new communist leader, General Secretary Gorbachev, publicly promoted a new policy known as Glasnost, which promised greater government transparency and allowed ordinary citizens more political freedom, including 
the right to criticize their own government. It seemed like there was reason for the average Soviet to be optimistic. Internally, though, the Soviet Union was rotting away on the inside financially. Military spending consumed somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of Soviet GDP, and they simply couldn't take it any longer. Time was running out. Gorbachev knew he would have to make a deal with President Reagan and avoid another arms race at all costs. He could only hope to get some concessions in the process. He said, quote, They're banking on the Soviet fear of SDI in moral, economic, political, and military terms. They're pursuing this program to wear us out. In 1985, SDI showed few signs of letting up. The United States Space Command was created to run and coordinate military operations in outer space as a fundamental part of SDI. In the fall of 1986, Gorbachev and President Reagan met at a scenic venue in Reykjavik, Iceland. It was the second time in the two men's careers that they had met in person, and this meeting would be their most historic. The United States Secretary of State at the time would later describe it as the highest stakes poker game ever played. Gorbachev seemed willing to negotiate on virtually every issue relating to nuclear weapons and ICBMs. In the past, the international community had criticized the Soviet Union's record on human rights. Now, Gorbachev agreed improving human rights could be a regular item on the negotiating table. Both men spoke amicably about the possibility of a brighter tomorrow, a future without any nuclear weapons at all. Gorbachev proposed that nuclear weapons could be gradually reduced and eventually abolished by the year 2000, a deadline that was less than 15 years away at the time. While he might not have said it aloud, the reality was that it was awfully expensive for the Soviet Union to maintain its status as a nuclear power and as a superpower. So such a deal stood to save the Soviet Union a huge amount of money. What did Gorbachev want in return? He asked that the United States prohibit all space-based testing of an SDI system, that all research testing be confined to the laboratory. By all accounts, President Reagan had never intended any part of SDI to be a bargaining chip in negotiations with the Soviets. But now it was, and Gorbachev was willing to trade an awful lot for it. Alas, President Reagan refused. He still clung to his vision of SDI, and the dream would never be realized if testing could only be done in the laboratory. There would be no deal. In 1987, a massive Soviet rocket launched a curious piece of technology into space dubbed Polyus. Officially, it was stated that Polyus contained multiple harmless scientific experiments. Unofficially, it contained a prototype carbon dioxide laser known as SCIF, designed for testing in outer space. Carbon dioxide lasers 
were one of the most powerful continuous wave lasers in existence at the time. It was a marvel of engineering. If SDI continued to progress, SCIF might one day evolve into a system to counter SDI. But a technical malfunction led the entire payload to fall back into the atmosphere shortly after launch. As the Soviet government spent vast sums of money on weapon systems, economic struggles continued to get worse for the ordinary Soviet citizen. For decades, communist officials had lived in opulent wealth, while ordinary citizens often struggled to find basic goods and services. Now, Gorbachev had taken on the gargantuan task of slowly reforming that system. In the words of Gorbachev, quote, The old system collapsed before the new one had time to begin working. Gorbachev had also abandoned the Brezhnev Doctrine, an old Soviet policy staple which stated that the Soviet military would intervene in any scenario where an Eastern European country tried to abandon communism as a political system. Now, without fear of Soviet reprisals or violence in the streets, nations all across Eastern Europe developed strong independence movements. They were tired of being Soviet satellite states. Poland was the first of the old satellite states to hold free elections, rejecting communism entirely. But many other nations soon followed. By 1991, out of all the nations in the Soviet Union, only Russia and Kazakhstan had failed to formally declare their independence. Just a few months after a failed coup by Communist Party radicals, Gorbachev resigned from office. The Soviet Union was dissolved a few days later, and the Cold War officially came to an end. For well over four decades, the United States and the Soviet Union had stood on the brink of global conflict. In the early 1980s, the two nations had come to the precipice of an all-out nuclear war during the Able Archer exercise, due purely to Cold War paranoia. But less than a decade after Able Archer, the most powerful communist country that the world had ever known collapsed under its own weight. After a seemingly endless marathon of tension, the Cold War ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. The American interest in missile defense continued in some form, but in the 1990s, it suddenly seemed far less vital. In 2014, Russia invaded and later annexed the Crimean Peninsula in Ukraine. The action drew controversy and moral condemnation from many nations across the Western world, but it did not bring the human race to the brink of world war, let alone nuclear war. Multiple nations today still possess nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia have by far the most. There are small arsenals of nuclear weapons in France, England, China, Pakistan, India, North Korea, and very likely Israel as well. It would be naive to think that none of these nations would ever decide to use these weapons in a conflict. Furthermore, historical examples like the Able Archer exercise show that a simple misunderstanding might be enough to trigger a global conflict. We live on a planet where ICBMs are as little as 15 minutes away from almost any nation on Earth. In 1995, 
Norwegian and American students collaborated to launch a rocket with scientific instruments on board in order to study the aurora borealis, or northern lights, particularly vivid during the winter months in northern Europe. The nation of Norway had launched many such rockets for peaceful purposes during the previous decades, but this particular rocket was larger than its predecessors. Consistent with international protocols, the Norwegian government notified all neighboring countries of the impending launch months before, but likely due to a simple filing error, the information never reached the Russian Federation. Russian radar operators, who were already accustomed to working long hours at a particularly tedious job, saw something that shocked and terrified them. It looked exactly like an incoming ICBM. It was hurtling over Norway when it was detected, but depending on its trajectory, it could be in Moscow within just a few minutes. The radar operators reported it immediately. Russian President Boris Yeltsin had a small black case placed on his desk, which would allow him to launch a full retaliatory nuclear strike against the United States. And he had just a few minutes to contemplate his decision or his country might be wiped off the map. He contacted his defense ministers and military commanders, and they continued to track the object on radar. The precise chain of events that followed is still unclear to this day. One would hope that military officials acted quickly to determine that a nuclear strike was not in progress. According to one rumor, President Yeltsin said that it was a good thing he was drunk that day. The world is still a very dangerous place, and that is precisely why we have divided this new series into two parts. There is a famous saying, once attributed to the great Albert Einstein, quote, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones.